Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where people tell me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. My special guest in this episode is the actor Robin Asquith, who, having survived polio as a child, went on to appear in lots of film, television and stage productions, including his film debut as Keating in the Lindsay Anderson film If, a role he would reprise in Britannia Hospital in 1982. Robin went on to appear in many films, including Otley, Alfred the Great, Nicholas and Alexander and The Canterbury Tales, and of course the horror films Tower of Evil, The Flesh and Blood Show, and Horror Hospital. And then the comedy films Bless This House, Carry On Girls and No Sex Please, We're British. However, it was his role as Timothy Lee in the Confessions film series that would make him a household name. In 1975, he was voted Most Promising Male Newcomer at the Evening Standard, then News, British Film Awards. Robbins appeared on television in series such as Randall and Hopkirk Deceased and Father Dear Father and a recurring role as Eddie in Please Sir and its spin-off The Fen Street Gang and the soap operas EastEnders, Doctors, Hollyoaks and Coronation Street. His most recent television roles include Emmerdale, Benidorm and in 2021 he joined the cast of Channel 5's drama series The Madame Blanc Mysteries, appearing alongside Sue Holderness, Sally Lindsay, who writes it, and Steve as a series regular. His extensive work on stage includes numerous farces, such as Run For Your Wife, Casanova's Last Stand, One For The Road, and Terry Johnson's Dead Funny, the title role in the production of Breck's The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, and The Child Catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. He lives on Gozo, a Mediterranean island near Malta, if you've not heard of it. Lucky devil. I've been trying to get Robin to be a guest on my time capsule for a number of years, but something always seemed to get in the way. So I'm delighted to say that here, right now, telling us the five things he'd want in a time capsule and quite a few other things, is the very entertaining Robin Asquith. I love how we're in rooms with all our shit around. It's it's terrific, isn't it? I dress this, it's taken me hours, but I've just... <laughs> <laughs> Normally, you live in a beautiful place. It's wonderful, I know. Yeah, you've, yeah. You've, you've had to put a wall up, it's it's blocking yeah. the view. Yeah, how are you? All right? No, really good, yeah. No, fantastic. It's just about to rain here for the first time since April, so it's just about to happen. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I would say, right from the start, there's you. You live in Gozo, between Gozo and London. Yeah. You're as fit as a fiddle. 
Yeah. You spend your time either touring around having fun with people like George Layton and doing shows with him and filming. So you're filming Immortal with lovely people like Sue Holderness and Sally Lindsay and the fantastic Steve Edge. The fantastic Steve Edge. And then you come back to Gozo and you spend the time swimming and yachting and like the, um, yes, the waiter, isn't it, in the hotel said to George Best, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? <laughs> yeah, but that, but the thing is, my, of course, you know, without being sort of funny, it's a, you know, life it, as it started in an iron lung, as you most probably know, uh, dying when I was a kid. And so uh, I'm not saying you, you, you make things want to happen like this, but I think it all balances out in the end, you know, for, for a lot of us. Um, yeah. But I've got to be honest. I don't wake up sometimes not cursing Sally Lindsay at 5.30 in the morning. Because um, I'm always, because I'm Madame Blanc, I'm the first one in makeup because they, they do my hair as, as a feature. So mm. I, I have to, I get picked up at 5.30. So <laughs> Sally pulls up at about 7.30. I mean, yeah. I mean it's, uh, so it's, um, in fact, my girlfriend said, will you stop posting pictures of you on jet skis? <laughs> Looking like you're just having one big party. I know. As you know, having been in Benidorm. Yeah, it's yeah. great fun and stuff, but um, they're long, hot days. Yeah, they are. That's why when you go out, eventually, you go a bit mad, don't you? I remember once in season three of Benidorm, when yeah. I was with the late, fabulous Jeffrey Hutchins, he said, oh, come out. Well, I, I will avoid, even though it's reported speech, the bad language. But I don't yeah, mind. I, it's up to you. You don't mind it. Well, it's I don't, I don't. I don't personally swear. That was not quite the truth. But I mean, I don't personally swear. But so the swearing will be uh, reported speech. But yeah. if you knew Jeff Hutchins, which I'm sure you did, <laughs> yes. uh, the, the, the c word was used quite a lot. Fucking <laughs> stupid! You. I don't think this is a classical actor. Yes. Um, any case, he got the schedule wrong, <laughs> and we were doing an all-nighter in Benidorm, which, as you know, usually involved Darren Litton. Um, who, of course, <laughs> as you also know, would be the first person to keep you up all night. And the first person, if you didn't know your lines the next day, you, you were in a lot of trouble. So I'd learned this. And Jeff, you would think I'd learned this. But he got, no, we're not on to fucking tomorrow. Yeah, and all this. And he, we got a call in some club at nine o'clock at night. It's a rescheduled. And he, he was, it was too late for him. You know, he was, too, he was gone already. And uh, I've never seen anyone look so ill in front of a camera as poor old <laughs> Jeff. And he was in, he was incapable of speaking. And um, I mean, he, but he got through it. I personally couldn't have got through it. And I wasn't working that next day, to be honest. I just came to watch Jeffrey Hutchins just die. Yeah, no, I learned my lesson right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was ahead of the game. That I knew I had a, I had a, in season two, I had a lot of dialogue. And, uh, and, and I, you know, as you know, when you're a guest, you get a little bit nervous, mm -hmm. uh, particularly if you've got a lot of dialogue, because you don't want to go in and slow the whole process, be the one actor. So I was prepared uh, because I, I, I knew this one of these scenes was one of Darren's favourite scenes and um, that he'd written of this con. So I'd really like for six weeks before I'd learnt it. Of course, we've. What infuriated him was we finished at four, so there was three hours wasted because I was spot on. Steve <laughs> Pemberton said, I've never known anything like this. <laughs> Unfortunately, that goes against you because when they reschedule you next time, they bung in extra scene. <laughs> they do. They sort of go, well, you can do it quickly. Okay, we'll yeah. put lots in. But the best actors do that. It's all preparation. That's why Steve Edge always turns up and you're always amazed. You sort of go, when did you learn this? I know, he's a bastard. Isn't he? He's a bastard. I always ask him, well, you know, it's, he, he is, to me, as you know, I love him to pieces. And, and he is the Richard Beckinsale of uh, who's, I mean, we're older than you, Michael. We're 10 years older than you. Richard, I knew very well, was the same sort of actor. They just sort of looked like they bowled up and were lazy charm and said these mountain in life, brilliant time. And that's what Steve, I mean, I know Steve Edge very well. And mm. I still, I don't know what the fuck he's up to, but he's, as you say, he always, he always turns up, he's spot on, and he's very, very mischievous with me. Yes. He encourages me to do dreadful things, to which Sue Holderness, Sue Holderness one day in this last season said, Robbie, if you do that, you're letting yourself down. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't do it, but I, but I love him. I love Very Steve. good. Uh, well, I'm very envious. Sounds lovely fun. Lovely people. Well, yeah, so, but it's, as you know, it's impossible. You, you know, like Darren, um, Sally is very similar to D Darren. You know, they, they, 
they rule the ship and they're not stupid. Um, in fact, both of them, of course, <coughs> wrote the series mm-hmm. and both exec. It's, it's similar. Um, of course, Sally stars in it as well. But they're not stupid. They run a very, very tight ship and I, I love them both to pieces. Yeah, rightly so, though, really. I mean, yeah, I was taught very early, Lindsay Anderson on the set of Britannia Hospital. Um, I was getting a bit cocky by then. It's now 1981. I've done about 25 films. And um, I remember saying to Lindsay, oh, I've got this, I've got this idea. And in front of the whole set, and there's people like Leonard Roster, Joan Plowright, whoever were there, <laughs> there was a huge pause. And he said, do you know how my heart sinks when you say that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, Lord. I know where to go. No. But um, no, no, I'm going back to the being lucky. No, no, you know, I am, and I'm aware of that. And I'm in the position now where... Um, I have great pleasure in turning down things like Celebrity Big Brother, which I've always turned down, mm. uh, and re- reality programs. I don't want to do that sort of st- stuff. It's just not me. I don't want to, you know, you know, it's taken me three years to sit here with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm quite, believe it or not, a private person. So the uh, one-man show gives me the chance, really, to be completely extrovert and be, in inverted commas, Robin Asquith. So, so I sort of get that out of, all, out of my system. And then you go back to Gozo and you just... Then I come back to Gozo and my girlfriend, Tracy, who's a teacher in Devon, who coincidentally, um, um, when she came out of university, dressed you. No. Yeah, she dressed you. I said that we were doing this. She said, oh, he'll never remember. She thought, I'll join the BBC and go with... Because those days you could go up, work your way through the ranks. So she started at the very, very bottom. And please take this nicely, dressing you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I'll tell you the, what the episode was. It was the Israeli embassy thing in Eastbourne. Oh, right. Um, wow. KYTV that was for. Yeah, yeah, it's KYTV. Oh, wow. Did she? She dressed you that episode. She would have been what? about 19. So. Oh, brilliant. And, um, and I hope I was nice to her. She said you were charming. Oh, that's good. Uh, I, I, no, I'm pretty good. I've got to be honest. I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. And most people I know, everyone's dead. So they're all going to be new in any case, aren't they? They're all going to be new. And so, and so my resurgence in television has, mm. has only really come recently. I've been mainly involved with theatre and, and touring, touring the world. And I've refused, as I say, to do uh, reality television, with the exception of the real Marigold Hotel, which I was booked to do and it was really exciting. And then they came along uh, and said, we've had to, we're replacing you um, because you're too youthful. And I, I, so you're paid and you're told you're young. So I didn't give a monkey's, but I would have enjoyed doing that. Yeah. And uh, it's been painful at times because they do throw a lot of money at you. And They uh, do, yeah. You know, mm. and I was w- walking down the, where I swim in the harbour and usually I've got a boat. I haven't got a boat at the moment because I love sailing. And I'm walking down the harbour, I thought, mm, I might get a boat. Uh, how much was Celebrity Big Brother? And you think, you know, such a phenomenal <laughs> amount of money. You yeah. can sort of pick. Uh, but I won't. I just won't. I can't be observed for 24 hours like that. And also me being me, I'm too easy a target. They pick something out. Uh, mm-hmm. And I lived through an age where I was, believe it or not, one of the most politically correct people, paradoxically, around because of my job. I had to run around with naked people every day yeah. and be, ni- be nice, charming like you. Uh, but I was like you, but with clothes off. And um, <laughs> so, so I had to be. And there's a nice bit in Linda Bellingham's, one of her autobiographies, mm. actually saying, because, you know, people say, oh, it must have been great, all those girls and this, that and the other. And uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was really um, a very strange job. And, you know, you've got people like Jill Gascoigne, Pamela Stevenson, Linda Bellingham, Liz Fraser. Mm. You know, people you're suddenly giving one to <laughs> and saying lines and trying to be funny. And when you're sitting in the makeup chair at 7 o'clock in the morning, you're looking to the left and going, oh, that's Liz Fraser. I'm going to be naked in a bath with her in an hour. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know Dustin Hoffman didn't have that problem. You no. know, he turned to Tom Cruise and went, you know, should we go over the line? Um, <laughs> or in, in your case, line. Yeah. Uh, so um, I would be too easy a target. You know, yeah. that's, that's a wise thing to know. And there are lots of people who wouldn't recognise that. in them. So they think, well, I'll go on and I will show them who I am. And it's nothing to do with them. It's editing. No, no, it's editing. They would pick me out, totally out of context, saying all the wrong things. And um, also, I've got history. You know, they, they can keep pumping up pictures of me running around Starkers with somebody. Yeah, which is um, it's fiction, 
people confuse fiction with non-fiction now. It's so complicated. I mean, like on Twitter, people say, oh, yeah, that Robin Esquith, he like to give the birds one or something. And, you know, you have to, <laughs> you, every now and then, and I don't engage in any controversy on Twitter at all, but I every now and then say, especially if it's somebody with a lot of followers that should know better, a, a, a sort of journalist, mm. I will always put, or a character I played. Sometimes it's just acting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ian Holm wasn't an automaton, though. No, no, <laughs> <Quite>. exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. So the game we're supposed to play on this podcast, Robin, is that you think of five things that you'd want to put in a time capsule, which I've done. Brilliant. And I can already, I can already attach because it's five things. It's four that I want to keep and one to take with me that, that I'd just rather forget, but it's got to come in the in the pod. So yeah, it's... you're going to put it in there, but in yeah. a way to sort of out of sight, out of mind, that sort of thing. Strangely, the first thing I'm going to keep is, um, and I have to be honest, I have discussed this with your dresser, Tracy, um, <laughs> that um, the, the first thing I'm going to keep is strangely uh, polio, because I think that it's completely defined. I mean, I was lucky. Uh, I mean, I had a, I had a brother. We lived in Southport in Lancashire, Birkdale, actually. So it was me and my brother. There was a polio epidemic in the fifties. My brother died, and, and I went into I went into hospital. So my mother had two children, and in a week, one was dead, and the other one she was never going to see again, which was me. So it was quite. But as a kid, you don't know. It's just like this is what's happening. And I remember being covered in red blankets and shoveled in the battle of ambulance. But you're not. I wasn't really scared or anything, but that journey has given me, if you like, my life's journey. So it has to come with me because mm. without that, I have this theory that I uh, might have either become a very fat drunk or because uh, I have to keep fit, otherwise I'll fall over. Steve right. Edge loves it. Steve Edge loves that. He says <laughs> you're like a shark. You know, I have to keep moving <laughs> to, get, get, to keep oxygenated. You have to keep moving, otherwise you're just going to fall over. Which, and there's some truth to that. Yeah. Or I would have been a Marine commando and got shot in the Falklands. So yeah. I have to take it with me because it's, it's never going to go away. And I was lucky because I, um, you know, Ian Drury would have most probably said the same. Although mm. he, he was, I, I, somehow I went from being in an iron lung and in hospital for nine months, written off, to being able to swim, mainly because my mother gave me threepence to go and swim in the um, Southport Victoria baths, which was sea seawater baths. Uh, so I learned to swim when I was very, very young, and which is why I'm a very strong swimmer. And you still do that, don't you? You do long distance just, swimming, don't you? Yeah, I'm going to. After, I'm going to do a couple of miles after this in the sea. Wow. Yeah. No, I swim. I swim every day if I can, which yeah. here, here I do. Well, I mean, in a way, that's the thing that you were told you would not be able to do. Well, I was in a wheelchair. They, I was in a wheelchair. Yeah. And told that's the end of it. And a lot, a lot of it is luck because the disease obviously leaves you in a terrible state, and some people. Most people that were in the hospital with me died, you know, that mm. was what happened. But I somehow got through it, and I was lucky that because not all people could go into a swimming pool and the legs got better, mine got better. And in older age, it gives Steve Edge a lot of amusement in <laughs> um, as, as I hobble along. So I'm putting that in because it's defined and it's introduced me to swimming. And also in the 60s, late 60s and 70s, and when I was working a lot and making a lot of films, there was a tendency mm. to meet in the Richard Steeles and play darts and get pissed with Ronnie Fraser. But there was something in me that was a little bit more egotistical. I thought, no, I'm going to look after myself. Uh, although I had a great time. I was quite, I was bad, but I wasn't bad to the extent I knew that, for instance, I'd, in 1972, making a film like Horror Hospital, I knew I had to take my clothes off I had to, this is way before the confession films, run mm. around and do lots of running through fields from the top off and, and all this. I knew I had to be fairly fit. And there were no gyms in those days. It was very difficult to find, to keep fit. But I was lucky because I could go, oh, I'm going to go up to Swiss Cottage Swimming Pool, Richmond Swimming Pool, where I was living, uh, and I would swim, mainly by myself. I would say, could I have a lane? They thought I was mad. Um, <laughs> no, a lane doesn't work here anymore. No. Um, anyway, so I was swim up and up and down before a film. And when the confession films came along, you know, I had a flat in St. John's Wood, which was famous. It was full of people from the Hollies, Pink Floyd, Roy Harper, 
I, I mean, all the people that were recording up at Abbey Road. It was mm. it was quite a den of fun. Uh, so I had to be very, very, very careful because I knew a film would be coming up. I would be up at six o'clock in the morning. I would be shooting every day, every scene, and and a lot of them had to be naked. And well, you can see I I, I, I kept pretty fit. Mm. Um, whereas whereas other actors, uh, and I'm not going to name them, uh, my friends did let themselves go a bit because you yeah. had to. It was, it was, it was, there were no gyms. There was no keep fit. Everybody smoked. But I think, I think this is attached to the second world war. I think we were the, the first generation that did not want to fight a war. Mm. Every generation before had first world war, Boer wars, Crimea war, whatever. There'd always been bloody war, war of the roses. You know, there'd always been bloody wars. Mm. We, we got the pill and we didn't, uh, the national service was abolished. There was things we didn't have to do. And, of course, that's where America sort of slightly went wrong with Vietnam, uh, which is a bit of a sweeping statement. But, um, <laughs> so, in other words, I think that uh, sent everyone a bit crazy. I mean, I remember walking through Liverpool with my grandfather, which was bombed to, to fuck. Mm. And, uh, and I remember saying to my grandfather, who did this? And he said, the Germans. You know, that, that sits with you for a long time, yeah, especially yeah. when you're making a film in Hamburg, which I was in 1969. What did that look like? Actually, Hamburg looked a lot better than Liverpool, to be really? honest. But I'm talking about the 50s when I was walking around Liverpool. The 60s, I was wandering around Hamburg. Uh, there, there were some bits that were, did look like Hull, you know, that, that looked a fucking mess. Yeah. Um, and I love Hull, <laughs> by the way. Uh, Stuart Lee calls it the canary in the coal mine of Europe or something. Um, <laughs> well, you're right to put polio in. That is absolutely a defining thing. Yeah. Let's put that in as the first thing. I think this is a two-parter. Um, <laughs> so what's number two? Uh, I- I'm going to go to the thing I hate now. I mean, I, I was tempted. The thing you, that you don't like and... Mm. You're going to put in there. I was tempted to put matinees in, but I can't put <laughs> matinees in because that's an insult to the people that pay good money and expected a show. Mm. And obviously, the way I perform, as I'm sure you know, is I, I can't walk through anything. But most of the work I did in the 70s and 80s, I was the leading man and I was on stage for two and a quarter hours, leaping around West End a lot. So two matinees a week, uh, the Saturday back to back. So you're absolutely knackered coming off and then you go back on again you started to curse matinees. And I remember one in Dublin where I was heckled by Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, <laughs> well, and t- I tell you why. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and an actor called Robert Pugh, who's a brilliant actor who I've since met and worked with, actually, they heckled me because they would have been about nine to 18, 19. They were drama students. And I was in Dunleary, actually, at the pavilion, doing Who Goes Bear? And... Uh, Unfortunately, it was twinned with Hamlet <laughs> in the afternoons. But there was one afternoon, of course, where there was Who Goes Best. So we've got all the Hamlet actors, Daniel Day-Lewis, etc., turning up to do Hamlet. And they were told, no, we've got Robin Esk with the Who Goes Bear. So they decided to sit in the audience and give me a bad time. <laughs> so I'm tempted to put matinees in, but I can't because in the main, particularly in the West End, I mean, I did run for your wife for 15 months. It's full. So you can't insult an audience, pay good money, and get, well, and invariably the, that show would be better than the evening show. So Yeah, well, I hope Daniel Day-Lewis, if you shouted out, how long does this go on? You say tomorrow yeah. and tomorrow and yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> yes, except for that's Macbeth. Ah, see. Ah, you see, you're talking to an educated man here. So what have you chosen to put in? Uh, what have I chosen to put in? Uh, things I've already discussed. I'm going to put Lindsay Anderson in. Mind you, I saw a great interview with Brian Cox recently, who's, and I, anybody that's into Lindsay Anderson should, should watch it, him discussing Lindsay Anderson. I, it was just so influential to me. But it, most of the things I'm putting in are like metaphors for a lot of other stuff. Obviously, oh, I haven't actually put the thing in. It's not matinees, it's something else, but I'll get back to that. Um, I haven't actually said what I'm putting in. I'm no. Like, I actually haven't put anything in yet. No, the it's thing in, you want to get rid of. Let's is... end it here. <laughs> no, but I'm going to go faster now. No, the other the thing, I've, the thing I've got to put in yes. that I wish never happened, but then I sort of do, is Queen Kong, <laughs> the worst film ever made. Somebody got hold of a copy and they said, we want to show it in Darlington. Would, would you? I said, don't. I said, don't do that, please. And um, so he said, look, I'll give you X amount of money if you'll come and do like an hour of your show, stand up afterwards. So I went up 
it, you could have sold it ten times over. It's heaving. They showed mm. the film, which is fucking dreadful. And then <laughs> I went on, but they're loving it. Then I went on and um, talked, but it's it has to go in because it, it's so awful, and yet I'm in it, and uh, <laughs> I, I have lunch with Stuart Lee, and he hands me a copy of Queen Kong, the book, for him to sign. It's madness. Uh, and in fact, Stuart has threatened to show it at the Prince Charles in London <laughs> and then us two to go on and do You should do it. You should do it. You're sort of doing this as a kindness to mankind, aren't you? Saying, I'm going to put that in there and then nobody has to look at it. Well, yes, I am. I am. But people like Stuart Lee come along and they want <laughs> to intellectualise the whole thing as a shout for feminism. And actually, when you watch a movie, you think, oh, well, hang on, he's, he's got a point. But as we all know, there are many times in your career where somebody says, I want you to do this. This is the scene. These are the words. Say them. Do your best. And you do your best. And then you look back at it and go, what the hell was I doing? Well, my career has been peppered with that the whole way. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, even the confession films were, I just thought I'd get away with making one take, make a bit of money and run away. You know, look what happened. It fucked me up completely in a way. But then... Like the polio thing, it defined me in another way. Yeah. Uh, I made a lot of people a lot of money. And now I do one-man shows and there's people, which is really bizarre, aged 18 to 80, engaging with stories mainly of that era. Mm. Uh, and you, you think, well, that's a bit like you or I being 18 and going to see Douglas Fairbanks Sr., you know? <laughs> yes. It's very odd. But Queen Kong was, I, was sort of at a little bit of a sort of um, height because I just won the most promising newcomer, the Evening News, now Evening Standard Films Award, and got legless with Oliver Reed. <laughs> so in other words, I had people knocking at the door-ish saying, uh, you know, what's, what's exciting can we do next? Mm. And my agent, Hayes Malone, who was brilliant, this is what she came up with. She said, you've got to go and meet these Italians. They've got this film about a giant gorilla with big tits. <laughs> um, and you and you is Queen Kong and you're Ray Fay as opposed to Fay Ray. And I said, really? Is this some sort of? Anyways, I went along. I met these Italians. It was an Italian film and I shot at Shepperton. Um, it's a big load of nonsense I've ever seen. And uh, I got paid a considerably a lot more. I got paid for a confessions film and uh, bought a boat. In fact, um, mm. so I got that out of it. But it it was unexplainable. And Rula Lensko, who was in it with me, leant across at the showing and said, darling, if this ever gets out, our careers are ruined. <laughs> and it never did get out because Dina De Laurentiis put a lawsuit on it because it was passing off the King Kong that he'd just done with Jeff Bridges uh, and uh, Jessica Lang, I think. So, so it wasn't allowed. But then it, it became quite big in Japan as only a film like that. I don't know how the Japanese got hold of it, but they got hold of it. <laughs> And I was very big in Japan um, <laughs> through Queen Kong, something I, two things, or, or everything's wrong with that sentence. So, um, <laughs> so so that was weird. I love the idea of you saying 18 to 80-year-olds coming to your show and actually still engaging with things from way back then. Because the moment you said you were going to do it, ages ago I looked at it, and then it said, oh, Robin's uncle is Rob Wilton. Great uncle. Great uncle, Rob yeah. Wilton. Now, there will be people listening to this who say, I don't know what you're talking about. But for me, you say Rob Wilton, and I immediately go into an impersonation. I immediately stick my finger in my mouth yeah. and go, oh, well, it, it turned out nice again. Well, you say that. People who watch this will now Google Rob Wilton. And they should. And they won't be disappointed. No, it's absolutely brilliant. There's a sketch he did years and years ago that is stuck in my mind. The policeman sketch, you know, the policeman yes. sketch? Yeah, yeah, And he's yeah. asking the woman who... About the murder. Well, he's killed, yeah, she's well, killed well, his wife. She's, killed, she's, she's poisoned killed her husband. husband. Yeah. yeah. And he's saying, so, you know, give me a description of your husband then. Um, and she says, um, well, he was, um, he's four foot two. He says, he's four, four foot two? <laughs> he says, oh, I'll, I'll only need half this paper then. And he says, <laughs> <laughs> it's a brilliant yeah. joke. That's how my life... I, I sat at his feet. Wow. When I was about... Because he died when I was about seven or eight. So, in mm -hmm. other words... I was not a very well boy, sat at his feet, listening to this chap practising his routines mm. in Hendon. It was in Hendon. It was in uh, my grandfather's house in Hendon. So in other words, I just thought all great uncle or uncles, you're right, it was called Uncle Rob, were like that. And mm. 
so in other words, I was ingrained with a stream of consciousness humor, which wasn't to really appear again in my life until Billy Connolly, because then it got into the age of comedians. Uh, I was very privileged to know Barry Cryer, who was a very enthusiastic and, and very helpful, but he, he always tried to guide me down the comedy route. In, in, but like you, I was an actor. I, yeah. I hadn't done that much comedy. I would say to Barry, I can't tell jokes, which I can't. I can, but I, can't, I don't enjoy telling jokes. And Barry used to say, no, you've got to, you've got to go on stage. You've got to say, no, I'm not interested in anything. I ignored all that. And it wasn't until Billy, I was making a thing called the, the Birth of It, was I was doing a thing with Michael Gambon, who sadly just lost in BBC Glasgow called The Borderers. And I, I had a, we had to have Scottish accents in BBC Glasgow with Scottish actors. Michael Gambon very sensibly had it written into his part that he went to university in London and came back <laughs> with an English accent. But in any case, uh, there was an actor called John Greve. I knew John Greve, yes. I did a radio did series with yeah. Did you? Yeah. What a lovely John, man. J- John Greve, I did a radio series with him. He was a very lovely man. He was, um, uh, I, I was quite slim hipped and attractive and uh, without going down that path too much, he would take me off to sort of various clubs, that mm-hmm. you call them. And he said, um, you've got to go to this club. There's this folk singer who's fucking dreadful. Plays <laughs> ukulele. So we got a banjo. Uh, and so we went off to this uh, folk club and watched, God, of course, you know what's coming, uh, was Billy Connolly doing folk. I think maybe Ralph McTell was on as well. In any case, they're, they're, they're playing. And, of course, he's heckled so much. Uh, he said, John Green said, now this is the bit. Mm. And it was his responses to the heckles, which were the beginning of his act. And then I sort of started seeing him. And the stream of consciousness, uh, I just thought, was unbelievable. And there was Jasper Carrot, Mike Harding, Max Boyce. There was a few around that did mm. uh, a sort of stream of consciousness. So it wasn't until Billy Connolly came along, after Uncle Rob, that I, w- I had some sort of, oh, this, yeah, this is what I really, really like. And then after that, to be honest, it wasn't, and he'll hate me for saying this, but it wasn't really till Stuart Lee yeah. Um, I could watch someone on stage. I was lucky enough to know all three of those people. My uncle Rob, obviously, Billy Connolly became a friend, and, and Stuart, I know very well. So That is the history of comedy, isn't it? Because actually Stuart Lee is a genius, I think. I would say to people, you must YouTube Rob Wilton if you don't know what it is, because in that very same sketch, she's describing her husband, and he keeps writing these things down. She says he was bald. He says oh, he's bald. Okay, all right, bald. Yeah. And said, and, uh, and he, did, he had no teeth. He had no teeth. And and uh, and, and, and he, he had, a, had a limp. And he was not need not limp. Did he have any ambition? <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. It's genius. It's brilliant. Well, people will will now go and watch that if anybody sees this. I'm sure yeah. they will if they already haven't. And it does hold up now. Mm-hmm. Those do. Those just. Absolute zany, completely off the one lines like you've just done, flying in from nowhere. Yeah. Which is what Billy Conley does and what Stuart Lee, every second of his act, you mm-hmm. think, whoa, where the fuck's that come from? <laughs> and all three of them are not really like their stage persona. I mean, no, not really. I mean, Stuart's nothing like it at all. No. Um, you know, we were, we recently wandered around a stone circle on Dartmoor, which was. Very interesting. Um, all three of them. But Billy, I got to know a little bit in the 80s because I was touring a play and he was doing, he was playing like concert halls. I was playing theater, little theatres. We had mm. the same promoter. So we go out on boats and stuff together because they're entertainers. And a day out with Billy, you'd come back like, oh, Jesus Christ. But he wasn't <laughs> meaning to be funny. And nor is Stuart. And, I don't, and my Uncle Rob wasn't. You know, if he went off to make a cup of tea, Uncle Rob, it would be like, and I'm just a little boy, would like be thinking, oh, this is, I love laughing. You know, this is terrific. <laughs> to be introduced to laughter early in your life. Yeah. I was very lucky. Yes, fabulous. Well, uh, th- we've put the film in, though, is the thing you want to get rid of. So that's it. <laughs> Queen Fuck Kong. Fucking I'm so sorry about this. this I, is- I don't mind at all. I'm loving it, I tell you. Honestly, <laughs> no, I'm no, loving no. it. So next thing is we've already mentioned is Lindsay Anderson. There you are. I told you he was entertaining. Sadly, we have to have a short interlude now, leaving space for, hopefully, some adverts. We'll be back in three hours. Sorry, that's just wishful thinking. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back. And as Burke and Hare used to say, thanks for your patience. Right, let's find out what the next thing is that Robin Asquith would like in his time capsule. Yeah, I've, I've put Lindsay Anderson, because he was just such a huge influence. I went to Merchant Taylor's school, um, which was obviously very posh, and I was eventually expelled, but I was I was quite bright. I was on my way to Bristol University, um, but it was the 60s. A, a succession of things happened, and I was expelled. And Lindsay Anderson saw me in a production of Richard III, uh, which I was playing Richard III, and um, my nose fell off, and I, I <laughs> ad-libbed. A nose, a nose, my kingdom for a nose. Which is not bad for a 16-year-old. Very good. Iambic ad lib. Hey, <laughs> Lindsay Anderson, who, who I sort of vaguely knew, because we'd, we'd on a school trip, used to go to the Royal Court, and we'd, I'd seen the Far Razors, a Max Frisch play, which it was his, and Long Short and the Tour was his. We'd been to see some stuff, so I vaguely knew, but I hadn't seen this sporting life, which was his oeuvre of the time. Mm. And... Uh, he got me for audition after audition after audition. Uh, and I wanted to be an actor, obviously. Uh, at that point, I wanted to be a Shakespearean actor. And um, I auditioned for, for one of the leading parts. And I, mercifully, I didn't. But he, he just, as he does, he, takes, he gets hold of people, Lindsay. And Brian Cox talks about this much better than I could ever do. He gets hold of people and he never lets go. And uh, I was fortunate to be one of those people. And, you know, whatever my career was doing... He came to see me on one of my sort of nadirs of my career doing pantomime with him, both him in Bath. <laughs> he came afterwards and I was said, oh, Lindsay, you know, Pasolini, Zeffirelli, Lindsay Anderson, um, musicals in the West End. I'm now doing fucking panto with Ian both Me and both of them I love, by the way. Mm. Um, but um, he said, no, no, I'm going to go. And he came to the mass and he said, I'm staying for the evening show. I said, what? He said, it's, it's pure breck. <laughs> he said, a sportsman, you, Dick Whittington, it's Brecht. And um, it, so things like that sort of cheered me up a bit. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think that is in a biography about him. There's actually a letter that he wrote to me. I don't know how they get the letters. And there's a letter that he wrote to cheer me up. Uh, so Lindsay's there because he was always there. Uh, and he still is in my mind. Uh, and he's one of those huge people that we all have. that when they die, you, you just can't really... They, they don't go. And Lindsay is one of those people. And also, um, like Stuart, he, 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 we, I don't know what they're talking about, really, but it sounds very academic and very intelligent. And <laughs> I, I obviously convince them that I'm understanding what they're saying. Also, <laughs> politically, I don't believe either of them. They're two people that could argue both sides of the coin. So mm -hmm. they very interesting. But Lindsay was very interesting. I, I certainly don't think he was a socialist. He was apolitical, asexual. A, he was a everything. But but I have to have him because he, he was an unlikely but huge influence. I wouldn't have had the career that I had. And he's the, the, the credits, for instance, of Confessions of a Window Cleaner, Christ, I was depressed enough then. Mm. Um, and uh, the, when I'm on the bike and going through the ladder and everything else, and which was now iconic, uh, it threw me into depression. I thought, fucking, I'd gone from something that happens to theatre with Michael Rubman 
to driving a fucking ladder up Bournemouth High Street. And, and Lindsay said, no, he said it's one of the finest pieces of cinema he has ever, ever seen, that sequence. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, is he, taking the, is he taking the piss or is he not? You know, you don't know. I don't um, know. You look at If and you think there are bits in it where you think, is he, is he winding me up? He, said, he says, I've got no answers. I've just got a lot of questions, which I'm not sure is true, but that's certainly what he does with If. Yeah. It's If, but it's also If. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's like all the um, controversy wrapped around the going into black and white and sepia. They said they run out of money. That's bollocks. It's nonsense. <laughs> because it was there. It was in the chapel where the first black and white sequence was shot. Mm. And, you know, it's my first film. I was on it for eight weeks, Michael, and I was on every day. It was like a workshop. Brilliant. And I didn't have the responsibility of a leading part. It was perfect for a <laughs> 17-year-old just expelled on my way to Bristol University actor because I, I was working with some great people. I didn't know how good a director he was, obviously, at the time. But the black and white sequence was shot because Miroslav Ondracek, the, if I remember correctly, the lighting cameraman, and, you know, I was really interested in, in, in the lighting and every, or everything about film I was interested in. Mm. And um, it was too difficult to light. In those days, matching, when they eventually had to go through it and do the, the colorization of the whole thing, it was too difficult to match and light, in that period of time, a chapel. But he could light it in black and white. Very quick to light black and white. Mm -hmm. And that's why it was done. And so it's typical Lindsay, because... People theorise about, oh, the reason he's gone in, it's, it's a black and white, because it goes back to um, uh, the 1930s German influence. No, you know, it's bollocks. It's, it was cheaper. Yes. <laughs> Easier to light. I think that's often the way. The thing that links all those people together, you know, I think Rob Wilton definitely because of looking at his work and looking at those monologues he did, which are just so daring. Yeah. And people say things like, you know, well, comedy has, has grown into this thing now. But I think it's cyclical, isn't it? Yeah. They're all tied together, I think, by the fact, particularly, Stuart Lee, the nerve of it. Well, and also those three people... And even Stuart in these times don't need social media. You know, Rob Wilton didn't need social media. Um, Billy Conley was without it. I mean, Stuart, he's got his website that you can book for stuff, would exist totally on the fact that he fills theatres and those tickets are sold, really, word of mouth. Yeah. It's like the old days. Uh, and they um, sell out instantly. He could play bigger theatres, but I think that actually he'd lose the show yeah. a bit. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure there was a time when he could do a stadium. No, he's much happier when he feels he can see every member of the audience personally and, and put his hand around their throats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word, doesn't he just? The point is about that is it doesn't need... So it's not selling tickets. And I remember having this discussion with Matthew Sweet, who I'm sure you know, um, about, because um, he wrote a book called Shepherd and Babylon. And he's now a friend. In fact, he's coming to my London show in a, a couple of weeks. Um, mm. And I did a, um, one of my, this is my, uh, will now be my favourite interview, of course, but there's a free thinking with me and um, Matthew, and um, which I really enjoyed. But there's a, there was a point and he introduced a, a very early film of mine called Cool It Carol at the Barbican, uh, which he's he sort of fallen in love with. And, but in Shepherd of Babylon, he, he, he says that uh, he, he goes on about my films filling theatres because the 70s were so depressed that people <laughs> wanted to huddle together in great numbers in a room to keep warm. <laughs> that's, that's very good. That's his theory of the success of the Confessions film, which right. falls apart, as I put And he's, he's now... He's now um, rescinded. He's now, he, he doesn't say that anymore because it was word of mouth. People went out of the cinema and went into the workplace and said, you've got to see what this guy's doing yeah. in, in the bubbles or whatever. You've got to go. And that attracted the audience. And as Leonard Roster pointed out to me once, actually they were quite funny, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and they had very good, the John Mazuriers and the Dandy Nichols and people like that in. Um, yeah, fantastic it, cast. It, Great. Class. It's like all this, like it's like the Blessed House film. It's just full of the most well, fantastic names. Well, you've nicely segued me, me on. I'm going to put Blessed House in. Number four, then. Okay. But I'm putting it in only because when it was made, first of all, I think Madame Blanc, Madame Blanc, um, <laughs> uh, was uh, 
and Sally will hate me for saying this, they made me do so many screen tests because, you know, Americans involved with everything else to get that part. And one of her favourite films, Sally's favourite films, is Bless This House. So I owe a lot to Bless This House. But I said, well, here's the, uh, here's the, the twist. I said, I'd done an episode of Bless This House, the series, and it was between me and the other guy for the series. Um, and he got it mainly because of the colour of his hair. But that didn't matter. You know, it was pretty, I, I was always working. But Sid had remembered me because I'd done an episode. So when it came about to do the film, they uh, were looking for someone. And Sid says, oh, there's only one person that can play this part. And that's a guy I've worked with. I'd have been about 21 at the time. It's called Robin Asquith. So I got in a, my tripe herald, drove to Palmer Studios. In those days, you'd go through the original opening. There was Tom. I don't know if you remember Tom on the door with the, the sergeant. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. It would just direct you in. And I literally walked to where they were filming Carry On Abroad. And Carol Hawkins was a friend of mine. And she said, oh, oh, this is a surprise. This is a surprise you've got, Sid. Uh, it's Robin. And don't forget, I wasn't Robin Asquith. I was just a jobbing actor. Mm-hmm. She said, oh, and I knew Carol very well. And she said, oh, oh, it's him. He's he, that you want him to play the son. And I'd never met Jerry Thomas. I shook Jerry Thomas by the hand and I got the part. And I always say to Sally, I shook Jerry Thomas by the hand and got the part in your favourite <laughs> film. Madame Blanc, I said, I have to fucking walk over burning coals. <laughs> but I put it in because... It was the first time, um, I mean, you've got to be arrogant, as you know, you've got to be slightly, Tracy saw the, um, my girlfriend saw the Robbie thing recently and said, there's some similarities. I said, no, don't say that. She said, the, the, the total self-belief and ego thing. And I said, well, there has to be that. And so I had that. But what Bless This House did was in a way confirmed that I might have any talent at all. And this does sound arrogant, because when you've got people like Sid James, mm-hmm. the scene when I'm flipping the burgers and cooking, which was shot obviously in one long sequence, which they let me choreograph myself. And when you've got Sid James putting his arm around you at the end of the day shooting, that took a long time to shoot. And he, put, he said, I haven't seen anything so funny since Charlie Caroli did some routine. Wow. And at that age... To be told that, yeah, I it affirm you can have all the self belief in the one in the world, but but every now and then you need someone very much to cut forward, like Sally. I like this bit, you know. She's got a hand on my shoulder now, saying it's all right, you know, it's okay, mm-hmm. this is great. So to go from age twenty two to seventy two to have people patting you on the back, um, I mean, I've fallen apart many times in between, but. That's why Bless This House is there, because then every day I did after that particular sequence, I could add a little bit more uh, and or I felt very confident or if they didn't like a bit, they would be quite honest and say, no, don't do that. And I respected them and said that there's a bit which is always quoted and shouted at me across streets were two lines uh, when I, he tries to drag me away from my beloved car and in the script just goes, I won't leave it. So on the take, I went, I won't leave it. I won't, you know, like fairly realistically. And mm. Sid came over and it, the rain machine was going. He said, no, you've really got to, I said, that's over the top, Sid. You know, that really is. And I'm 21. Yeah. So what is in there is, oh, oh, oh. and it's sort of become iconic. People <laughs> shout at me across the road, especially when I'm in my car. Oh, oh, oh. And I think, I mean, I didn't particularly enjoy doing that sort of acting. But it's in there because of that, of what it led me on to. Yeah, well, I think when someone like Sid James says something as wonderful as that to you at the end of the first day, you have the right to be confident. You know, I mean, he did the things he'd done, and you think of only you know Hancock and that sort of thing. And Hancock made the very foolish mistake of letting him go from the thing. Well, that's the famous story, isn't it? He, yeah, he got rid of the writers, he got rid of Sid, and then he got rid of himself. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Who, I think it's Willie Rushton. Some who I don't know who said that, but uh, mm. um, you know that's right. And and I was a Sid fan. I mean, Taxi with Ray Brooks was one of my favourite series, which would have only been a couple of years before then. And then I got to work with Ray Brooks, strangely straight after that. And um, Ray Brooks, who came to see me in a play in the West End, and his son Will. I said, do you enjoy it? He said, no, unfortunately, you came on and Will was sick. We had to leave. <laughs> <laughs> so, bless that, that, that's, well, we're getting through this now. Fucking hell. Um, we're, uh, no, but, but, so, but bless his house is in there for all those reasons. Lovely. 
Yeah, that's a film worth watching as well. So uh, we're, we're leaving people with a great list of things to be watching on YouTube and to be looking. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a good uh, uh, Iron Lungs. <laughs> and if they don't know about polio, that's something they really actually Actually, yeah. that's, there's a great fucking, I'm sorry about this. There is a great documentary. <laughs> I've got um, Sue Holderness, I have to watch this. Because she, she was waffling on about something, and I, I said, no, but I, she, she missed the whole point about polio. I said, what you've got to watch, we were talking about vaccinations, so it was quite controversial. And um, I said, there's a great documentary in two parts about how they found the polio vaccination. And that's something people should YouTube. It's these yeah. two viro virologists, whatever, whatever they were, chemists, the scientists, uh, the, the Americans, vying with each other to get the vaccination right but it's i mean as you know from personal experience it's something we absolutely must be vigilant against oh absolutely yeah I, in fact i got a big response on social media when with all the controversy about vaccinations and stuff you know polio it's just sneaking in again mm. and you've got to remember people have got to sort themselves out otherwise these bastards will be back yeah the bitch that bore him is in heat again <laughs> right what, what's that for him? Uh, I don't know. What is that? Bitch, the boy it's was from in the Irresistible Rise of Arturo Uri. Ah, you've done that, haven't you? Yes. That was directed by Roger Michel. Was it? Was he a good director? Fantastic. Never employed me again when he became famous. <laughs> but uh, he was only about 20 when he did that. I've got some shots of David Haig standing behind me, corpsing. Uh, <laughs> there were a couple of people I was going to ask you about, just out of interest. Um, yeah. I, I read something that you went to the Corona. Uh, you Well... Briefly? I read that. I read that somewhere. Is that That's true not, or not? No, it's not really true because what happened was I was doing um, drama as a kid, drama demonstrations of, of Shakespeare, believe it or not, Shakespeare and speaking, when I was about mm. 14, 15. And I won a lot of prizes. And I was doing something at Hillingdon. And these guys, I bet you remember them Michael Summerton and Michael Barnes, a casting director. I do remember him very well. Yeah, well, yeah. they sort of came up to me, sort of took quite a liking to me. Mm -hmm. And I was only about 14 at the time. They introduced me to Hazel Malone, the agent, whose sister ran Corona. So when I got if, Hazel wasn't stupid. You know, she represented people like Richard O'Sullivan, Dennis Waterman, Malcolm McDowell, mm -hmm. um, Barry Evan, uh, Susan George, Judy Jason. She had a good bank of people. She, she obviously recognised some sort of commercial viability with me mm. and uh said when you're not working <laughs> you can go to my sister's drama school well i'd come out of a boys only public school mm. and i was in this stage school with girls it was fantastic <laughs> absolutely fantastic so i did it's quite true i did pop in there and pop out but i wasn't really no. uh, a student as such but i was a tiny bit younger than dennis waterman and richard O'Sullivan, who became friends and jeremy bullock but I love, I love getting there because of the girls. I'd never had girls before. I mean, it was fantastic. Yeah. Which is why I became a communist, Michael. <laughs> right. Okay. I became a communist at public school because it was very <laughs> sexy to stand outside the top-ranked Watford selling copies of, of YC, young, which is not a young conservative, young communist. The girls loved it. And yeah. it was only ruined by my friend, Tony Stark, his father picking us up in the top-of-the-range jack. <laughs> um, the girls were out fucking. He's a tough sir. <laughs> well, let's look at the last thing you want to put into the time capsule. Have we got there? We've got there. The fifth thing. Fucking Jesus Christ. <laughs> unbelievable. Oh, it's a very, well, it's a very simple thing. Mm. It's sailing. It's yachts. Lovely. Uh, and once again, it connects to my childhood mm. because um, I was uh, quite a hyperactive kid. I know what you're going to say. I, I, I was quite a hyperactive kid and, a middle-class family, which you, you most probably are, I expect, mm -hmm. brought up in that sort of environment. I, I can't remember any parenting at all, really, um, which is a dreadful thing to say. I always say to people like Terry Christian, Terry's always having a go at me about my posh upbringing. I said, Terry, you know, when I look at pictures of you on Twitter with your arm around your mother and your father, I said, I haven't got any of those pictures. I haven't got pictures like that. I said, I don't think my parents ever touched me, mm. to be honest. So I was sent off in the summer holidays to get rid of me uh, as a very frightened little boy to sailing school on the Norfolk Broads. Right. And it scared the shit out of me because <laughs> I always seemed to be the youngest. And when the boats were keeled, they were like, oh, I hate this. And the smell of the life jackets and 
and the bullying and all that went on. Yeah, so not um, really swallows and Amazons then. No, 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 no. This was. Um, <laughs> well, I was going to say something <laughs> inappropriate. So I'd learned how to sail. So it was a skill I'd accidentally attained. And so when in later life, I, uh, I told you, Queen Kong, I bought a boat and I'd be touring a lot. I'd always go on lakes with like the company manager. I said, get, you know, organize me a, a boat on a lake. Mm. And I could sail dinghies quite well. I was quite adept at sailing. So when I had some money to actually buy bigger boats, I um, started to buy bigger sailing boats. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but when I'm trying to explain the science of sailing to some people and they can't get their head around it, I realised how lucky I was at such a young age to be pushed through that. Yeah, You know, being pushed and bullied sometimes is not a bad thing because there's some shit you should know and it prepares you a little bit better for life. But I, I'm very, very lucky that I can sail, and it's always got me out of trouble when I've had a bit of a problem, a big divorce or whatever. I've got a boat and fucked off. Mm. How big did you go? 45 is the biggest. Wow. But that got too big, mainly for if the wind came along. <laughs> the, wind came, <laughs> the wind came along when I was coming stern on it in a harbour. Mm. It was very difficult to control my bow, which has been the story of my life. <laughs> and it was always my dream to sail around the world. And the one chance I had, of course, I was working, mm. um, which was on, on a, a yacht called GB2. It's one of Che Blythe's yachts. Wow. And so that's not going to happen, sadly. But sailing comes in with me because, or it goes in the pod. It's, it, so, so all the things I put in, mm. they all define me in some sort of way. Yeah, they do. It's been really interesting to listen to you talk about the things I'm you've exhausted. Done. I bet you are. <laughs> I kept looking at my watch, and I thought, and I was looking at the second hand. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I've enjoyed every second of it, Robin. It's oh, been absolutely God. fantastic. And I hope it's stopped raining now, and the sun's going to come out. Well, the sun's not going to come out, but I'm going swimming. I've got, I've got to... I do apologise. <laughs> <Dear God. laughs> it's a lovely idea. Have a gorgeous day. Yes, very nice to meet you. I, I hope to see you... You know, I can't... You know, On the I green, I think. On the green. On the green. Absolutely. Bless you. All right, mate. You have been listening to My Time Capsule. With me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Robin Asquith. Thanks for listening. If you had fun, then do tell your friends or rate this podcast and even maybe review it, and then you can tell strangers as well, without actually stopping them in the street and telling them which could get you arrested. If you subscribe to My Time Capsule, then we'll send you every new episode as they're released. I'm very active on X Twitter and a bit active on Instagram, threads and Facebook. My granddaughter is very excited by the number of views I got on TikTok for something I put on there, but I'm not really on it. Maybe one day. Anyway, do follow me or my time capsule on the social media site you prefer, and we will be very happy to engage with you. Not to get engaged to you, obviously. But we are very friendly, so try and be friendly back. Thanks. You can download or stream the theme tune written by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify anytime, and this was a cast-off production for Acast. It was produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'll leave you with a joke from Robin's great-uncle, great in every sense, Rob Wilton. I personally like the last line of the fireman sketch, which finishes with him saying to the person on the telephone, ''Can you keep it going till we get there?'' However, to demonstrate how modern, absurdist comedy isn't really that modern, try this one. A bloke went into a pub and asked, What soft drinks have you got, barman? The barman said, I've got some without vanilla, some without lime, some without lemon, oh, and one with peppermint. Oh, damn, said the customer. That's the very one I wanted. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. 